It annoys me so much when prohibitionists try to tell me there is something wrong with cannabis. I have to practice calmness in the face of this idiocy. So you can imagine my frustration when reports began being published that some cannabis users were becoming weak and nauseous with abdominal pain and in need of hot showers because of their heavy cannabis use. But then, as someone who attracts cannabis patients like I do, I learned that there really seemed to be something going on because of an increasing number of cases being called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome in the community, yet I remain skeptical and curious. Cannabis social media was apoplectic about CHS and arguments about if it existed and if it was caused by Neem or Eagle 20 or any other additive were really common. This week, Lead author Dr. Ethan Russo has released the first original research on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, and they have discovered the genetic markers behind CHS. An understanding of what triggers the expression of those genetics is vital, and cannabis is clearly one of them. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. Dr. Ethan Russo is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Dr. Russo has joined us before on Shaping Fire, episode 22 on treating traumatic brain injury with cannabis and mushrooms, and episodes 11 and 27 about his famous research papers on cannabinoids and terpenoids, and episode number 67 about treating migraines with mushrooms and cannabis, and of course, the Shaping Fire sessions on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel. Today, we offer Dr. Russo's first public interview on the results of his groundbreaking paper on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, let's start out by getting a little bit of context. While there's been a lot of social media discussion for what would become known as cannabinoid hypermesis syndrome in the last three years, the original index case that, you know, way before it was named goes all the way back to 1996. How has interest in this syndrome increased over these 25 years or so? Well, it has a great deal. Uh, there's been increasing recognition of it so that diagnosis has become a little bit better, although it still remains the case that people that have it often have to go through many hospitalizations or ER visits uh, before it's identified. Um, it 
is increasingly common in relation to more potent material, uh, meaning that cannabis being higher in THC. Uh, but overall, it still would have to be considered an uncommon condition, but one that is important to recognize. That original case back in 1996, um, what about it made it stand out? I mean, that's that's some time ago. Uh, what, you know, at the time, did they just say, "Oh, this person got really high, and and therefore, you know, we're going to tie this to THC," or or was it not even originally tied to THC? It was not. Um, but basically, this is in Australia, and it was published along with about eight other cases only in 2004. So it was only after a series of patients who were high cannabis users and were um, with close questioning that uh, the pattern was identified and recognized. So over these 25 years or so, what do you think was the main feature that caused the interest to increase? Was it just simply the increased use of cannabis and therefore there were um, just statistically more cases of it and so there was more ability to look at it? Or was there some change in you know, uh, scientific policy or, or a, a particular grant that broke the right way? Like, like what has increased the interest in it where people are actually looking at it now? Well, it, it goes along with liberalization of cannabis laws in many jurisdictions, but most particularly with the increasing availability of high-potency material, such as in vape pens and concentrates. So that's a factor, but again, there's the recognition factor. Uh, that all enters into the equation. I see. Mul multiple things happening at the same time, making for this opportunity to look at it. Sure. Right on. So hyperemesis syndrome is described, you know, mostly by a, or at least up until now, as a basket of symptoms, a basket of these common symptoms. Would you describe them for us? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very stereotyped syndrome. So what it includes are cycles of severe nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, but they're accompanied by a very characteristic finding, that is of the patients who are afflicted with it engaging in hot showers and bathing, uh, almost in a compulsive fashion, sometimes hours a day. Uh, and so that is really what we call the pathognomonic sign, the sign that clinches it uh, when it's combined with the other symptoms. So is it because, well, it's interesting that you would say hot showers. So we're not talking cold showers because they might have a fever or something. They want hot showers. Does the, does the afflicted patient know why they want to take hot showers? I mean, what's, what's their motivation? Why do they think they want to go take a hot shower? Uh, usually people are not aware of the condition and that this is an accoutrement of it. And they may just notice on a day when they're having abdominal pain and nausea that the time they're in the shower, they feel better temporarily. Mm. And so, you know, humans notice patterns and eventually they come to realize that uh, this is making them feel better and they pursue it sometimes hours a day. Uh, and it's a frequent occurrence that uh, the hot water runs out. Um, and then eventually they end up in the emergency room with an extensive evaluation. 
When you say that um, that the syndrome has got stereotyped syndrome, that sounds like the medical use of the term stereotype. Because I didn't hear you describe any kind of like stoner stereotypes. What does stereotype symptoms mean? It means in this instance that uh, you see the same thing uh, throughout. So if someone has this syndrome, they're going to have all these features, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and the hot shower behavior or bathing behavior. I see. In contrast, say, for example, if we were talking about lupus, where, there, yeah, it's another basket of symptoms, but of the 30 symptoms, somebody might have their particular four or five. So instead of a mix and match, pretty much everybody has most of these symptoms, or if not all of them. That's exactly right. The okay. vast majority of people are going to manifest all of these four features. Um, has anybody died yet? Yeah, unfortunately, there have been two clear cases on, you know, this was not related to um, an overdose uh, per se. Rather, uh, they died of complications of the vomiting. Uh, mm. If someone vomits repeatedly, eventually it's going to cause chemical imbalances, uh, problems with the electrolytes, uh, the minerals in the blood. And um, there have been two documented uh, cases of deaths and question in a third. And there may have been others, but uh, there have been two reported. So, so let's look at the uh, the symptoms uh, in a sli- from a slightly different perspective. So, uh, as we've talked about them so far, we've been talking about these established stereotyped symptoms, um, and we're looking we're able to look at them in hindsight. Can you give us a first person perspective of the patient and what they would experience? Like, what are the first ones to come on, and and how can a patient uh, delineate between these and you know maybe like smoking while they have the flu or something? You know, like how sure. how, how do they know when they should be like thinking about this? Right. Well, let, let's set up a sort of archetypal patient. Um, this presents in phases. So. Uh, Cannabis hyperemesis or hyperemesis syndrome is going to appear in someone who uses cannabis. And usually it's going to be a high volume user, uh, most often of high potency material, meaning high in THC, and on a regular basis, most often daily or more than daily. Um, But the phases are these. There's what's called a prodrome. This means an initial stage where while people are using cannabis they may develop nausea and vomiting along with anxiety and some sweating behavior you know things that go along with stress the second phase is clearer this is going to have the hyperemesis along with the abdominal pain and the the hot water water bathing and then the third is recovery which happens only following abstinence basically as long as someone continues to use cannabis, even in lower amounts, they're usually going to be at risk uh, for having episodic attacks of a similar nature. So when we're talking about the volume of THC um, that is required, and we'll talk about some of the, the other you know, requirements or, or what we are seeing along with the THC, but specifically on the THC, you're saying like high amounts and you're saying that, okay, so we're seeing more of this as flour is getting uh, stronger and we're doing um, concentration and, and, and high, um, high THC edibles. Um, does it matter 
let's see, how do I want to say this? Does it matter if somebody smokes a little low THC flower every day versus somebody who dabs on the weekends, right? Like maybe over the course of the week, they're going to get the same amount of THC, but in one time you're going to get it all at once. And then the, and the other person, they're going to get a little bit every day. Uh, I'm trying to understand the nature of the threshold. Yeah, well, that's going to vary with the individual, and unfortunately, when once the syndrome has become established, uh, the threshold is not very high. Um, so, for example, if someone's been in remission after abstinence from cannabis for a while, we find that they often will resume pretty soon afterwards, uh, not long, um, and it usually goes along with establishing, again, some degree of tolerance. So when somebody begins to escalate their dose to achieve their desired level of high, um, often they'll have a recurrence. So, you know, uh, to mention your example, this could occur in either context, uh, the low volume user during the week or the dabber during the weekend, but um, I'm afraid there'd be no guarantees and it's... People can try to skirt the edges of this, but they're usually quite unsuccessful. Sure, sure. So, and I can imagine that, and, and we'll talk a lot more about the, the genetic makeup of, of these patients during the second set, but I would think that at the top of that list would be somebody who dabs every day, because these are the people in our community who are getting the highest amounts of THC every day quite true quite true so so how about um with edibles as well um you know we know that the the mode of of using thc matters a lot for you know a whole range of you know body responses um are people who are taking high levels of thc from edibles having these experiences as well well, they certainly may. Um, in our survey, people had mixed methods of administration, but most prevalent were either um, smoking a flower or um, high-potency inhalation by whatever method. Mm -hmm. That was the most frequent. But it, there's nothing to say that uh, using an edible would prevent this. And in fact... Um, it's going to be tough for someone who's in the midst of uh, an episode of susceptibility to keep uh, material down in an edible. So, you know, the fact that this um, this research, it was done as a survey plus a uh, genetic um uh, portion of it. Um, it's, it's interesting because it kind of shows two sides of, of the coin. On one side, you're asking people about their use. And then on the second side, you're actually, you know, running, um, you know, taking a look, a short read of their genetics to find out what you can, what, can, what you can find in common. Um, you know, I would have, I, I can't help but have some amount of, of awareness that people don't usually want to talk about their cannabis use um, because of its historically being you know, prohibited and, and taboo. Um, would you explain how uh, the survey functions? Um, because you, know, you and I have talked off mic about this before, and you know, you've, got, you've got a lot of good feels and a lot of confidence in the information that you're getting from these surveys. Um, and, and I think we'd all like to understand how that works when, when the basis of the survey is asking questions. Yes, sure. Well, first of all, this is all anonymized. Um, you know, if you ask me who was in it, I couldn't tell you except for a couple of people who have told me themselves after the fact. 
Um, so great pains were taken to protect people's identities, uh, especially in the instance of taking their genetic material. Uh, it's a highly formalized procedure of ensuring that uh, that infor information can't escape. Um, so, uh, and this went, the, the other layer of protection was that this went through what's called an institutional review board, um, an ethics committee, to ensure that uh, there'd be no danger to patients, and that includes um, uh, being identified uh, when they do not wish to be. Is it hard to communicate this safety idea to people who are doing a study on something that may even be illegal where they live? Um, it sure has been in the past, a little bit less now with the liberalization of laws, but it remains an issue, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I like actually your use of the word liberalization of laws. I hadn't heard anybody use that before. You know, people, a lot of people use legalization or normalization, but liberalization is, is yet a different way to put it, which is, which is not the other two, which I don't, I don't think the other two really fit are what we're experiencing yet. So I like that. I think I'll, I think I'll use that myself. So, um, and, and did you reach out to these people because they were showing symptoms and you reached out to them through healthcare providers? Or did you just put a, you know, a big call out to everybody and people who identified with the, with the nausea and the hot showers just kind of like self-identified? Yeah, more the latter. It was uh, systematized. Um, I sent this to various listservs related to cannabis to physicians um, who have an interest in cannabis. We also reached out um, to uh, emergency departments and gastroenterologists, and we contacted people who had previously been authors of studies of CHS. Um, and, uh, you know, it was put on social media as well. So there were a variety of methods of outreach. Uh, but people could only come to it if they self-identified as being of interest, being interested in the study. Right on. Okay. Well, I want to I want to go into the THC survey aspect and the uh, genetics aspect in the same set, so that we can talk about all of that at once. So let's go ahead and uh, take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. Over the years, Shaping Fire has been invited to sponsor several cannabis cups, and I've said no to them all. It wasn't until the Autoflower Cup that I really wanted to help promote something, and the producers, Sebastian and Carla, didn't even invite me. I approached them. I told them that Autoflower Cup was important to me for three reasons. First, it was obvious that they were going for a friends and family vibe instead of some sort of commodified cannabis vibe. This event was going to gather really cool folks. Second, the event had a ton of cool stuff to do and to learn and to participate in. The event isn't just about cannabis. It's about living life fully, enjoying community, eating together, laughing and listening to music, and mushrooms. Third, and most important to me personally, the event was authentically for the autoflower community, and the autoflower community needs a place too. Autoflower is about getting high, sure, but I find that much of the autoflower community is still focused on cannabis patients, home grow, sharing best practices, sharing seeds, and humility. These are the ideals that I share with the event, and I wanted to make sure I did my part to help it succeed. Announcing the 2021 Autoflower Cup August 6th, 7th, and 8th in Lillooup, Washington, just outside of Seattle. 
This over 21 event is presented by Camp Ruderalis. The Autoflower Competition is open to everyone, commercial and home growers. So get your skills recognized and enter today. A cup win now will make you a leader in the community. Here comes the ear candy. Stunden Glass Hookah Lounge. Pop-up Magical Butter Chocolate Shop. Waterfront Marketplace with an array of vendors. There will be an old-school autoflower seed swap, joint rolling competition, cannabis cooking demos, solventless squishing demos, and late-night documentary screenings of Fantastic Fungi. Chef Sebastian Carosi's award-winning classics like Elk Chili, Kobe Beef Kimchi Dogs, Oyster Po'boys, and Razor Clam Chowder. Wild oyster harvesting, mushroom foraging, s'mores around the campfires each night. Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian presentations, psilocybin mushrooms presentations, camping, glamping, RVs, and Airbnb. So check out CampRuderalis.com for those details and follow the Instagram at the Autoflower Cup 2021. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. With the National Hemp Program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV, while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD Seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD Seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause too by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. 
If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So let's dive into the first half of this paper, which is about um, the survey about talking to cannabis users about their usage of cannabis generally, but more specifically, you're trying to tease out THC. Um, how did you go about asking the questions, Ethan? What were you trying to pull out of them? And 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 after they answered, what did you see in the results? Sure. Well, uh, it was a large series of questions, uh, as, as you've seen and will be evident in the paper, because we include links to the entire survey, both the uh, CHS patients and the controls. Uh, so we went through simply saying, have you used cannabis in the last year? How often? How much a day? What type? Uh, by what method, uh, et cetera, et cetera, until uh, we got the answers we wanted. But um, we started out with 585 respondents. Of that, there were 205 patients who had the constellation of symptoms of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome and carried a diagnosis. Um, so we were being very careful uh, about who we selected for the study. We needed medical confirmation plus ongoing symptoms. So that's how you get from 585 to 205. Of that group, most were very high frequency users of cannabis. 91% used daily or multiple times a day. Um, and as we mentioned, it was a high amount. Um, cannabis flower or concentrates the median response was four grams a day of wow. THC predominant material. Um, other features of the CHS patients, 15.6% carried a diagnosis of either cannabis dependency or addiction. So that's much higher than uh, you'd expect um, in other populations. And to corroborate that, um, almost 57% had experienced withdrawal symptoms from cannabis, which was all, also uncharacteristic. Um, now, on the good side, when people stopped, uh, like they might have gone to the emergency room and told they had to stop using cannabis, 87.7% improved after they stopped, but almost all suffered a recurrence when they resumed. Now, a big problem in this study was finding out who do we compare these people to? We couldn't just use um, normal people who didn't use cannabis because we wouldn't know if they had a susceptibility to developing cannabis hyperemesis syndrome if they hadn't used it in similar amounts. So we found controls, so-called, um, who were high volume users of cannabis but did not have CHS. Uh, so we ended up with 54 of those. And in the survey information, all of them had used within a year. 70% were daily or more than daily. And again, mostly by smoking THC predominant material. Now, in contrast, 
to the CHS patients, only 3.7% had been labeled as cannabis addicted or dependent. And the vast majority, 76%, had never had withdrawal symptoms. Uh, only 11% had been told that they needed to stop cannabis for health reasons. Um, so we felt that this was a good uh, comparison group. And uh, so these two pools, the 205 patients with CHS that was confirmed, uh, they had all the symptoms, they had ongoing symptoms, they had a diagnosis from a physician, and 54 controls. All of these people were offered the option of having their genomes tested. Uh, this is done by a swab in the mouth and uh, through uh, the technology th that sample is amplified so that we can look at all the base pairs um, uh, of the genetic sequence and see if there are any unusual patterns. So that's how it was done. Now that really whittled things down. Although 99 patients from the CHS group agreed to get a test kit, only 28% returned it. That seems especially low. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially after they were said they were willing to do it, but we actually had a little bit of pushback uh, from the CHS community. Uh, there were people that questioned our motives. Uh, there were some people that said you shouldn't do this study. Um, and uh, so it was uh, very difficult. It took us a year um, of recruitment to get our sample, which ended up being 28 CHS patients and 12 controls. Were people pushing back because it was being sponsored by a private company instead of an academic institution? Uh, well, it could have been a factor. Um, but let's make something clear and I, I don't know how to say this except telling the truth it's going to sound accusatory um, but people with CHS tend to be very uh, suspicious um, and many uh, people who have it don't believe that it's related to their cannabis usage I mean after all everyone knows that cannabis is supposed to be good for nausea and vomiting so how could it be creating this problem well, in fact, THC is an antiemetic, something that helps prevent vomiting, but it's also subject to what's called a biphasic dose response. What that means is, at low doses, THC will prevent nausea and vomiting to some degree, hopefully a lot. But at high doses, it flips its activity and can be pro-emetic, meaning uh, making vomiting more likely. Um, plus, there are other considerations. When someone uses cannabis to this extent, they have tolerance. Part of tolerance is that the CB1 receptors in the brain where THC works uh, downregulate. They sort of fold in. It's uh, the brain's way of say saying, um, too much activity here, we've got to turn down the volume. Uh, so there are all these things that uh, may be coming into play as well as uh, the metabolism, the breakdown of, uh, of THC that uh, we had to consider. Um, as we discuss the results, this will become more clear.
So as um, so, you sent out these these ninety nine kits, and and about you know ended up being about twenty five percent of people responded. Um, did you um, did you see uh, enough in the data where you were able to get what you wanted, even though you got less participation? Uh, we believe so. I mean the the proof of uh, something medical is in the statistics. So what we want to see to make something statistically significant is uh, what's called a p-value, probability value of 5% or less. What that means is that the results that are seen could only happen by chance 1 in 20 times or less. And so we achieved that with several uh, examples. Um, Obviously, it would have been better to have more patients, but that, again, proved very difficult. Uh, It wasn't just the pushback from the community. There are a lot of people who don't want their chromosomes tested. They've heard of situations of people getting arrested, uh, not because they had their uh, genetic profile done, but their cousin did, and somehow law enforcement found their way uh, to the person in question. There have been some high-profile cases solved recently related to this technology. Hmm. All right. Well, I can see that. So, so um, it, as far as a patient having hyperemesis syndrome, it seems like we're, after reading paper, we're talking about uh, two things that have to both happen. Number one, the the cannabis user uh needs to have a high overall use of THC, which uh, appears to be predominant daily, and that they're using more than um, four grams of high THC material a day. And of course, while that's a big swing between four grams of flour versus four grams of um, oil, one way or another, you're you're at a high level as far as the, the overall... Um, you know, users in the United States, you know, four grams of flour a day, while, while not necessarily incredibly high for a lot of people I know, if we take the pool of all cannabis users, it's actually exceptionally high. It is. And I, I would emphasize that lower levels of use could also lead to problems in someone who's susceptible. Right on. Uh, but this will vary. All right, then, then let's get to that susceptibility part. So the first part is you take you, you you know more or less you take in a lot of THC, but that has to be uh, coordinated with um, someone's genetic predisposition. And so this part of the paper, um, uh, you know, the, the unraveling the genetic makeup. Um, you know, I can I can admit to the fact that it's a bit over my head, but but luckily you break it down to, you know, there's there's pretty much five places that popped up for you that showed that some some correlation um would you go through as you know as you see fit the the five sites and what you what you learned from those sites sure be happy to but let's start off with one that we suspected that didn't turn out to have a pattern at least in the patients that that we examined so that would be a gene called cnr1 that's the gene that encodes the CB1 receptor. Uh, so CB1 is where THC works and the endogenous cannabinoids work. Um, so uh, this has been examined before in relation to other disorders. Um, 
And what we're looking for is often what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. This, this is a way of saying that there is a change in one pair of um, these base pairs in DNA. Um, so there's been some correlation of mutations on CNR1, the CB1 receptor gene, related to cannabis usage, but we didn't see that pattern in the uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome patients. But um, there's a disorder that's sometimes confused with CHS called CVS. That's cyclic vomiting syndrome. Now this is actually different. Um, this is often something that appears in childhood uh, but may persist into adulthood and people have episodes of vomiting that come out of the blue. It seems to be related to a propensity for migraine. Uh, so sometimes this starts off with a child who has episodic vomiting without a headache and it's only when they're older that they get the headaches. Now CVS cyclic vomiting syndromes become more confused with CHS because in CVS people use cannabis to advantage to treat the nausea and vomiting. But in cyclic vomiting syndrome there have been mutations in the CNR1 uh, gene that have been observed. So this is another point of distinction. So I wanted to start there where we expected a finding but it wasn't there but it still is useful because we can differentiate this uh, from cyclic vomiting syndrome. Got it. It creates a nice point of contrast. Sure. Now what did we find? Well we'll start off with a gene called COMT. That is short for a mouthful. Catechol-O-methyltransferase. COMT is the uh, gene that uh, codes for an enzyme that breaks down catecholamines, especially dopamine. So these are neurotransmitters in the brain and, and elsewhere. Um, so what we saw was a mutation in the COMT um, and this occurred in 57.1 of the CHS patients but only 10% of controls. So that had what, what's called a p-value of 0.012. So that's well below the 0.05 threshold that makes something statistically significant from a medical standpoint. And it had what's called an odds ratio of 12, um, which is, is quite wide as compared to the controls. Um, so what do we know about uh, this mutation? Well, when COMT has a loss of function, you have too much dopamine, and an excess of that is associated with a number of different problems, like compulsive behavior, and that can be anything from substance abuse, gambling, even sex addiction uh, have been related to this. Uh, this specific mutation that we saw is called RS464. Uh, 46316. Um, I'm sorry, let me do that again. RS4646316. Um, in prior studies, uh, this has been related to depression, 
uh, what's called rumination behavior where people can't get something out of their head they ruminate about it and also heavy heavy alcohol intake at a younger age um, and that is a feature in our survey that we saw in CHS patients that a lot of them had problems with alcohol at one point in their life or not um, other mutations on this gene have been associated with impulsive behavior disinhibited behavior also some associations with attention deficit obsessive compulsive disorder um, and I'm afraid a tendency towards anxiety and even psychosis um, so uh, it doesn't mean that somebody who has CHS has all these things but we have seen similar problems um, in this population it means that they're more likely to have these kinds of problems um, but certainly this finding provides some insight into some of the things the epiphenomena the um, features that we see in CHS patients all right so uh, is that is that complete on the COMT um, is that is everything that do you want to move on to the next one sure all right sure. let's do that well the next one is one that that I predicted um, one of the features of CHS is uh, one of the things that seems to help, of course, is the heat. Also, uh, use of capsaicin ointment on the skin. Capsaicin is the caustic part of chili peppers. Um, some time ago, it was noticed that when people had uh, application of an ointment with a lot of capsaicin in it, um, that it would reduce the nausea and vomiting, at least temporarily. So what the hot showers and the capsaicin have in common is that they're working through another receptor called the TRPV1 receptor. Um, and we saw a mutation there, and that was something we predicted. So 71.5% of the CHS patients had this, and only 30% in controls. Uh, so that's a p-value of 0.015 below the 0.05 threshold and an odds ratio of 5.8. So this gene has been linked to anxiety and pain responses in the brain um, and it's also um, uh, has activity on areas of the brain that relate to how fast or slow your gut is moving on how much fluid is secreted um, so it, it has a definite tie-in to nausea mechanisms. Um, now, uh, as far as we know um, so far, the TRPV1 mutations haven't been observed uh, previously when it's, we've looked at patients with cannabis dependency. Now, uh, our finding on this specific mutation uh, may be a new one because it wasn't in the usual databases of genetic changes. So this one is called RS879207. Um, but certainly the findings that we got suggest a linkage of uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome to mood and gut disturbances as well as obviously the hot water uh, bathing behavior. Um, and it, it again goes along with the um, success of using capsaicin on the skin um, that trip v1 receptor is really important in this disorder 
is capsaicin a common um, input into topical lotions? I, I haven't personally come across it before, though it could be very common. When I heard that people were using that and they're like, oh, this works for me, I'm like, I would never have even tried that. Sure. Well, you know, it, it's funny because it, it burns when you put it on. Um, it's like chili peppers. Um, I should point out, though, that... Um, absorption of capsaicin orally is not very good um you know people have used uh have uh, eaten thai food that was too hot sometimes it'll burn on the way in and on the way out it's not getting into the bloodstream but it does get in the bloodstream through the skin as as opposed to cannabinoids um so we we know that you can get blood levels um this way interesting yeah that is interesting um is there anything else that you want to mention on this particular site uh no i think that's good for now we actually saw mutations in another area of the same gene but it didn't quite reach statistical significance um is it the kind of thing where you know you you highlighted it and you're and and, but and it's worthwhile to look later on or is it like oh yeah you (laughs) you, do you want to tell us a little bit about it even though for this study it's not statistically significant uh sure you know it's something we're going to keep in the back of our minds as we get more people tested uh, maybe it it will achieve statistical significance at some point and certainly if if a person ends up having a mutation on two areas of the same gene it increases the likelihood that um, it isn't going to work properly and that there'll be attendant problems in other words disease manifestations right on um so what what is this other site Oh, it's just a different area of the same gene. You know? uh, oh, I see. So, so you just saw you just saw the correlation number was high, but you didn't take it that next next level to figure out um, what it might be doing there yet because the numbers were too low. Ah, uh, right. So I understand. It's something to keep an eye on in the future. All right. Well, then what's our next site? Next one also makes some good sense. This is the CYP2C9 gene. So this is a gene that it's in the cytochrome P450 series. These are enzymes that break down drugs and toxins in the liver. Okay. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, CYP2C9 is the breakdown enzyme for THC, and it's first metabolite 11 hydroxy thc so if there's a problem with this gene it may mean that thc doesn't get broken down as readily um so we we saw a mutation in the chs patients in 46.4 percent and only 10 percent of controls so the p-value wasn't quite as dramatic but it was still 0.043 which is below 0.05 um so, you know, if we think about this conceptually, if this enzyme is not as functional as it should be, it could lead to accumulation of THC and get into that biphasic dose response where THC, instead of becoming anti-emetic, becomes pro-emetic. Uh, or 
it's even possible because the enzyme isn't quite right that it's making a different metabolite than usual instead of 11 hydroxy thc it's possible probably unlikely but it's possible that it's making a different product that could uh, have toxic effects um, now to help us out here just a couple of months ago there was a new study where a single patient got tested and they had two sites on CYP2C19 that were off. That was a CHS patient who was cannabis dependent and they, they said had a personality disorder uh, as well. They didn't provide a lot of detail on that. So this is something that's been seen at least one other time. Um, but our study was the first to look at it systematically. The idea that um, this uh, CYP2C19 is where THC gets broken down, um, am I thinking about this correctly? If, if I think, were to think of it as, okay, normally when we um, use THC, it is cleared from our body in you know three to four hours, or at least from, from the usable flow in three to four hours. And so um, with this site not working effectively, um, it would just simply either A, break down the THC in longer than three or four hours, so there's like a, a, like a, almost like a half-life because you'd already be smoking your next smoke um, before it's, it, all, all the, your prior THC is processed, or maybe it's and or, um, it, the THC is being broken down incorrectly not towards like body best practices if you will and and so it's actually kicking out um chemicals that are are not what you expect when you smoke thc yeah that's right um you had said cyp2c19 this is actually cyp2c9 oh, okay but i'm glad you mentioned that because um, CYP2C19 also breaks down THC. It's just not the predominant enzyme that does. Okay. And we did see changes there in a few patients, but again, not with statistical significance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So by my count, um, uh, we have hit either three or four sites. So we've either got one or two left. What is, what's our next one? Yeah, we've done three. Well, right. well, we've talked about four, but three that were statistically significant. Now, the next one uh, relates to the first one, and that is, this is DRD2. This is the gene that codes for the D2 dopamine receptor. Again, uh, dopamine is a chemical messenger neurotransmitter in the brain. And DRD2 is the target of most antipsychotic drugs, drugs used to treat schizophrenia. Um, and when there's a drug that stimulates this receptor, it actually causes uh, vomiting and affects the gut motility, how fast the gut is moving. So we saw a mutation in DRD2 in 60.7 of the CHS patients and only 20% of controls. So the p-value on that was 0.031, well below 0.05. Um, this same mutation, which is on a thing called RS4648318, um, in prior studies is strongly associated with depression and anxiety. Those are features we see a lot in uh, CHS patients, unfortunately. 
Also, there have been associations of other mutations on this gene with nicotine addiction, uh, Tourette syndrome, and chronic pain. And uh, those are all, uh, well, addiction and chronic pain were, were features that we saw in a number of the respondents. Um, now, I should point out that we have a mutation on DRD2, also on COMT, the, the gene that breaks down dopamine. So we've got sort of a double whammy here, so to speak, affecting dopamine metabolism. And this may really help explain how cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is associated with nausea and vomiting and some of these psychiatric problems uh, that seem to appear in the same patients. All right. So um, it, it's interesting to see that this is the second site that we've talked about that's directly related to uh, the dopamine system. And so uh, no doubt that's playing a significant role in, in the, the, the um, syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And it also points out something else we know phenomenologically, and that is that the drug haloperidol, which is normally used uh, to treat schizophrenia, is more effective in treating the nausea and vomiting in CHS patients than the more commonly used drugs. Hmm. Uh, more uh, commonly used are uh, things like ondansetron, um, and granisetron that work through a different receptor, they work very poorly in CHS patients. Now, the problem is that haloperidol is a drug you don't want to be taking all the time. Um, uh, it has a lot of side effects. It's extremely sedating, uh, can be associated with massive weight gain, um, and uh, some really terrible long-term side effects. Um, possibility of developing diabetes or a movement disorder from the drug called tardive dyskinesia, which is extremely difficult to treat. So taking haloperidol on a regular basis isn't uh, something that people are going to want to do. Um, we have to look at, at better approaches. All right. Uh, I've got two, uh, two quick comments on vocabulary. First of all, um, uh, you know, I don't know much about the drug Dancitron, but I love the name <laughs> Dancitron. It sounds like it's a video game. on Dancitron. Oh, all right. Well, it's still, it's still pretty good. It's got a playful <laughs> ring to it still. But more importantly, uh, so, you know, I, for a moment ago, I was searching for the word syndrome, right? And I kept on wanting to come up with disease. When used, you know, as a medical term, what does this word syndrome mean? So a syndrome is a pattern uh, of problems uh, that leads to a diagnosis. A disease is due to one cause, whereas a syndrome may have multiple different causes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So actually, we'll use a misnomer. We talk about Parkinson's disease. It's not really a disease because there's more than one cause. It should be called Parkinson's syndrome because... Um, when you lose a certain number of neurons related to the dopamine system again um, in the brain, that can come from any cause, aging, strokes, toxins. When you have killed off 90% of those cells, you have a Parkinson's syndrome. Um, so a disease would be more like strep throat, um, a disorder caused by streptococcus. Um, 
but uh, unfortunately the, these terms are used somewhat interchangeably and um, you know but a syndrome is a pattern of symptoms or signs that leads to a diagnosis okay thanks thanks for doing that so so what's the the, the fifth and final um, site we're going to talk about here yeah well this one is a little harder to explain um, <clears throat> this is on something called ABCA1 that's the ATP binding cassette transporter this gene affects cholesterol and other uh, lipid uh, metabolism um, it's most important in that it's related to Alzheimer disease uh, and in that disorder there's an accumulation of abnormal uh, proteins um, uh, in the brain um, and we'll get to how that relates here if we can so we saw a mutation uh, in ABCA1 that was present in 67.9% of the cannabinoid hyperemesis patients and only 20% of controls. So that was a p-value of 0 0.012, um, well below the 0 0.05 threshold. Now, additionally, this was a homozygous mutation, meaning that you know we have two sets of, of each chromosome, and it appeared in both. Um, it wasn't just on one, it was on both. Um, so, unfortunately, because this gene mutation appeared in both um, chromosomes in affected patients, it could imply an increased risk of the development of dementia, memory loss, later in life. Um, and additionally, it could lead to risk factors for coronary artery disease, heart attacks, and the development of type 2 diabetes. Um, and uh, not this specific mutation, but another mutation on a closely related gene, ABCB1, uh, were associated with cannabis dependency in another study. Um, so, you know, the, but we certainly see a higher degree of cannabis dependency in the CHS patients. Um, then we could explain by chance. So when you got the results and you saw these five sites, um, there was a lot of correlation, and then there were the there was uh, the other one that didn't have quite enough uh, significant correlation. Was your initial response like, hot damn, there's five sites, we have something here? Or were you like, oh, we were really hoping for 10, this isn't a lot, or like anything more than one? You know, as somebody who is, you know, I don't do your job, so I don't know whether or not getting five hits like this <laughs> is like like wildly successful or, or regular or low. Um, I was excited. Good. I think we really have something here. We have... Um several genes that help explain the phenomenology of CHS. Um, now, I should emphasize, um, I don't know that any of the patients had all five mutations, um, but often they'd have combinations of, of one or several. Um, and what we're looking at, again, is a susceptibility factor. Um, we hope uh, that we can use this as a screening device. Um, as it is now, someone who has this constellation of symptoms 
ends up with a lot of hospitalizations and emergency department visits on and that is very invasive and expensive there have been two quotes in the literature of how much people have spent before they've gotten a diagnosis and it's ranged between $26,000 and $96,000 wow. um, and that was in the $96,000 was some years ago I guarantee those costs would be higher now if this is not recognized so it's our hope that in the future if a patient comes to the ER and the doctor there is wondering about this they may want to do this test um, and see if there's a susceptibility there uh, especially if they've previously had um, tests, CAT scans, MRIs, um, upper GI, lower GI um, these tests are almost always negative um, they're expensive, they can be invasive um, we're hoping that this is going to lead to better identification um, and saving people time and money as well as pain. Yeah, definitely that. Um, before I move us off the sites, do you have anything that you want to say on, on any of these sites before I move to the next, the next set? Oh, I think we're good. All right. So, so let's talk about, so, so far during this set, we have talked about, you know, the, the two primary, you know, folks who are in this dance, the first being high THC and then, and then second being, um, showing mutations on these sites. And, you know, as somebody who's been in the scene for a long time and, and have had friends who have experienced these, these, um, symptoms, um, and I've seen them firsthand, there's, there's a lot of us who have participated in really ugly threads on social media about what was causing um, these symptoms and then, you know, eventually being called CHS. Um, two of those um, are neem, which is a crushed up seed used as a fertilizer and to some a pest uh, discouragement. And then, and then other people were, were making suggestions that it's clearly Eagle 20, a classically banned ca uh, cannabis pesticide. And the defense of the, you know it being one or two or both of these were just like off the charts to see people get so angry with each other about bro science is really disheartening. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got to address these, Ethan. So, so what can you tell us about neem and what can you tell us about it? pesticides as their, um, you know, ability to be causes for CHS? Well, they are not. Um, I have been a great critic of pesticide use in cannabis. I've published uh, about this before, and it would have been nice if that were the answer, but it's not. Um, as someone who had the misfortune of uh, treating patients with pesticide exposure, I can tell you that it's a totally different situation to CHS. Uh, and as someone who uses organic neem on my uh, fruit and berries, um, uh, it doesn't fit either. Uh, the symptoms do not match up at all, and they certainly are not producing genetic mutations uh, at this level. It is the case that some pesticides could uh, mess with a person's DNA, but um, I'm afraid that uh, that is uh, just uh, delusional to think that that's the cause of the syndrome. A um, couple of other examples. Uh, again, this 
syndrome, CHS, was first described in 2004, at that time, it was not the degree of um, pesticide usage in cannabis culture that there is today. Um, so that doesn't make sense. Additionally, uh, CHS has been encountered, unfortunately, with synthetic cannabinoids as well, where uh, although they certainly can be toxic, there's no reason to think that there would be pesticides or neem in those. Uh, so that's just one of those um, theories that doesn't hold water. So, Ethan, the the the, the assertion that you made that uh, there were less pesticides being used in 2004 than there are now, like that jumps up to me like a red flag. So I'm curious if you would break that thought out to me, because, you know, as far as most of us chat, we most of us say, you know, back in the day, people would put, you know, any kind of evil pesticide on their stuff so that they could get it out through, you know, the black market and they and people didn't know their customer as often. And because they were, you know, they were shipping at places or they were, you know, putting it downstream. Whereas nowadays, people are more aware of the pesticides being unhealthy and more people are looking for pesticide-free stuff. That's my, my assumption, right? Um, what, what, what's in your head that gives you the idea that they were used more in 2004? Um, well, it's based on what I've heard from testing labs. Um, huh. Now, again, uh, the sophistication in identifying these compounds is greater uh, than it was. I, I think that this is a phenomenon that's gone through peaks and valleys. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I couldn't give you the, the statistics in any given year, um, but suffice it to say that pesticides and neem are not the cause of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Right on. <laughs> that, that part I get well. All right, great. So, um, all right, so let's wrap up this set. When we come back in um, to set three, we're going to talk about, um, you know, a, a handful of questions that don't have, um, you know, easy categories. But for now, let's go ahead and, and take our break. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. BIOS Lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online, and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated, so a little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are, and the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and over-educated customer service folks. 
BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishin presentation, Nicholas Mahmoud on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire session series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Lose or click on the link in the newsletter. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So, Ethan, you know, one of the things that the paper points out that, you know, I, I really identified with was the paper said that 
uh, in general, people waited a long time to get help. And while I'm certainly the kind of man who's willing to ask for directions when I'm driving my car, and I'm not afraid to go to the doctors, it all just sounds like, you know, a pain in the ass um, to have to go. But at the same time, these symptoms are severe. And the sooner you go, the better, you know, your likelihood for treatment is. So um, can you kind of talk to both both of the psychological aspect of, you know, people resisting going to a doctor about something, but also more specifically, um, what you saw as the line in the sand for these patients of when they had had enough? Well, I I think it often has required the intervention of a family member or friend, um, quite frankly. for some of these patients, they'll spend all day in the shower as long as the hot water lasts. Um, it really can come down to that, unfortunately. Plus, there's the factor that um, some of them have already been told that uh, this is likely related to cannabis usage, and it's not a message that's well-received. Uh, and then there's the whole factor of legality or illegality, Um you know, we on the West Coast are more accustomed to cannabis being legal, uh, but that's not true everywhere at all. And there's still a stigma attached, uh, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, I buy that. And and for for most of us who use cannabis, um, you know, even though I consider it all medical, most people think about it either medical or recreational. But but the medical care system is not necessarily our friend either of us. And um, and and no one wants to go to the hospital to be you know treated like an addict or something. You know. Exactly. Yeah. So so let's talk about the treatment. So um, you know it. it the paper makes it sound very cut and dry that the only treatment apparently is stopping using cannabis for a while. Is it that cut and dry? Well, it is if we're talking about uh, eliminating the problem. Yes. Um, Now, that doesn't preclude the idea that uh, we may develop approaches that are going to reduce or mitigate symptoms, Um, but we don't have anything like that now. You can't cover your body in capsaicin cream um, as a regular treatment. Um, So, you know, at this point, uh, we have signals from our results, uh, places to point for possibilities. Um, You know, we know that haloperidol uh, works better than other antiemetics. there is another drug, aprepitin, has been used in one patient. It works on a different area in the brain. Um, you know, uh, one of the things to wonder about is could the uh, problem be attacked by something from cannabis other than THC? Um, that's really possible. Say, for, the- say for example, when it, whenever you take your THC, make sure you take some CBN with it or something like that. Um, no, I'm afraid that isn't going to work. Um, seemingly, any exposure to THC is a risk factor mm-hmm. for someone who has CHS. Um, again, there, there may be a certain threshold, and we, we find people are trying to skirt that threshold all the time. But when an attack hits, it's too late. Um, you know, again, there's an uh, extremely high relapse rate 
uh, with this syndrome once it's established. Um, and uh, I, I, we have to recommend, or someone in my position as a physician has to recommend abstinence from THC exposure. Is it more like a tolerance break, or, or I mean, like, is it is it you know you you should stop using THC forever ever, or is it I at all at all? So it's not like oh you're a daily dabber, you need to go down to joints only, something like that. Again, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there is a low level threshold, but people are not going to be able to resume their prior uh, intake levels. I see. That's clear. Yeah, and this is very individualized medicine, so none of, none of these are generalities, really depending on the susceptibility of each person. You use the term attack. You said when they have an attack. I had not really considered it as an attack. So is it, it, do they come on like an episode where you're not yes. feeling it? Okay, will you describe an episode? Well, I, again, it could start with this prodrome of nausea and vomiting um, or low-level nausea and then progress to a full-blown um, episode with nausea vomiting abdominal pain and over the course of a day or is this like over the course of a week it again it can vary but Mm. um often there may be weeks or even months of the prodrome before uh full-blown attacks so we've we've got you know the possibility that changes in usage could be helpful we've got a possibility that um you know some of this pharmaceuticals might be useful but but really the long and the short of it is is once you're diagnosed with chs what is actually called for is cessation of thc sure yeah now again there may be other adjunctive approaches that are helpful um we're trying to look at uh, whether lifestyle factors enter in, um, you know, whether they're dietary changes that could be helpful, uh, anti-inflammatory diets, uh, more healthy, healthy diets, fruits and vegetables. That's unclear at this point, but that would be possible. Um, could uh, aerobic activity or meditation or any of these other things be helpful? Um, you know, we're at a stage where these are avenues that need to be explored, um, but I wouldn't have any hard and fast suggestions aside from THC avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, the study mentions a couple times uh, particular patients that exhibited withdrawal symptoms, and most folks don't consider cannabis addictive, therefore it's not really going to have withdrawal symptoms. And And I understand that like for a patient who is using THC for, um, you know, uh, reduction of suffering, um, you know, the, the lack of that, you know, causes pain, but that's not really withdrawal. What are these withdrawal symptoms that, that some of the patients exhibited? Well, it isn't pink elephants, um, you know, associated, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, uh, alcohol addiction. Um, Rather, when people have withdrawal symptoms from cannabis usage, it's usually some combination of mild symptoms, anxiety, insomnia, um, nervousness. Uh, It's usually relatively short-lived. But the fact that um, people had been labeled as cannabis addicted or admitted to withdrawal symptoms to a higher degree in our population is significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess one might expect it from the high levels of use, but again, the controls had similar usage rates without uh, a, 
the same levels of uh, addiction or withdrawal. So there's clearly a difference here. The um, both this study and an earlier study that is quoted within your um, survey. Um, list differences between the genders both in participation and in people who are experiencing um chs are we seeing any i don't know what you'd call it but gender predilection for for you know m- you know men or women to be more likely to get this yeah that's always an interesting issue it's clear from prior studies that there seem to be a male predominance Um, in CHS, but that's not what we saw. Um, Now, first, let's look at what happened before. It is clearly the case that more men are going to be high-volume users of THC, Um, but uh, maybe less and less the case, again, given current um, demographic trends. In our survey, we had a female predominance in both the CHS patients and the controls. Now, that could be due to the willingness of women to participate in the study. Uh, So, hard to say. Um, But uh, I think that it's clear that um, a person of either gender uh, could be susceptible Uh, to development of CHS if they have uh, genetic predilection towards it and high uh, rates of use of THC. All right, that makes sense. Um, So it's interesting, too, that the the older study showed more males and this this newer study shows more females. Um, Because the sample size is, you know, pretty small in both studies, do you think that's, you know, more likely just the randomness of who who signed up? It always could be. Um, Yeah, it's certainly possible. All right, fair enough. Um, You you know, before this survey came out, a lot of people who believed they had CHS were trying to um, help themselves by using CBD, uh, increasing their cannabidiol. Um, is there any suggestion that uh, cannabidiol, um, because of its general ability to modulate THC, is going to be any use for us? Maybe. The problem is uh, it's not clear-cut from the uh, information that we have at this time. Part of the problem, of course, is uh, that uh, it's hard to get material that that is solely CBD with no THC. Uh, Labeling isn't always going to give you the answer um, either. Uh, you know, we see a fair amount of THC contamination, if you will, of supposed uh, CBD material. Um, but it is possible that a pure CBD preparation um, might offer some protection, but that's conjectural at this point, and it also may not be what people really want. Um, meaning it won't get them won't get them the results that they're looking for exactly Um, you know why are people using this much cannabis it may be because uh, there are two reasons number one they enjoy it and or uh, it's treating something Um, 
they're using it to treat something, um, some symptom that they have. Um, so could CBD replace that? One hopes, but uh, I wouldn't say there's any guarantee at all. Uh, but there could be other cannabis components that are going to be proved prove to be useful or adjunctive treatments. But again, that's conjectural at this point and something we'd like to explore in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, the five uh, the five sites that we looked at earlier, um, are we aware of um, other other actions that happen on those sites that could suggest that there is a different cause to this than than THC or is the correlation so high that that um, you know other uh, other suspects are less likely yeah it's the latter mm-hmm. um, you know THC is the sine qua non if there isn't THC aboard you don't see CHS Right. That, that part's clear. <laughs> so that there might be other things involved, but THC is the, without the, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, there's this expression, uh, there's no never and no always in, in medicine, mm-hmm. but this is one of those situations where it appears that THC is always associated with CHS. Right on. Um, great. Well, uh, I think that wraps us up for today. Um, Ethan, thank you so much for sharing this information. You know, this is, you know, CHS or, or, or this host of symptoms has been a boogeyman in our, in our community for so long. And, um, you know, I remember being um, down at Emerald Cup, uh, I don't know, probably three or four years ago, and uh, we all shared a house. And I remember one of the friends who was staying with us lost her whole weekend because she, you know, had an attack, an episode, and she spent the entire weekend um, in the hot bath and a hot shower. And, you know, that was my first time that I had really come across it. And it seemed absolutely, you know, terrible to go through it. But also she was there, you know, as an employee before she was where they're working and she wasn't able to do that other either. And um, it, it's nice that there's finally, you know, I, I believe this is if not the first study to pull it all together, at least the biggest study. It's nice to see this finally coming together to get, put some light on it. Do you do you see um, research on this now continuing? Like, are there already second and third wave studies that have seen what you're doing and are ready to jump on and, and take the baton? Well, we're not quite published yet, so <laughs> no. Um, this uh, study has been accepted for publication in the journal called Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. We hope that it will spur other efforts. We certainly plan to remain involved in studying this uh, unusual condition. Um, So yeah, it's our hope this is going to uh, lead to better identification of CHS and hopefully better treatment in the future. All right, that's great. And and so if you're listening, um, uh, we're not going to publish this episode until the paper comes out. And so there will be a link to the paper on the website. And, uh, you know, in in case the idea that Ethan just said the paper's not out and yet you want to read it, you know, this, this, this episode will not come out until it actually comes out into the world. So Ethan, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate to have you here as always. Thank you for reaching out and, and offering us your first interview on the topic. And uh, we, we wish you much success in, in fleshing this out more. Thank you. I welcome the opportunity.
If you want to find out more information about this study or the, the folks that were involved with it, you can go a couple places. First and foremost, you can go to uh, Ethan Russo's company, uh, Kratos Science, which is C-R-E-D-O-Science.com. Um, you can also go to their partner for this survey, which is EndocanaHealth.com. That's E-N-D-O-C-A-N-N-A Health.com. And if you uh, listen to a couple episodes ago with uh, Dr. Chris Spruner, the naturopath who taught about individualized medicine. He's over at Endocana Endocana Health as well, and he is one of the co-authors with uh, Ethan on this this survey. And then, of course, uh, Ethan always shares his email address in case you want to reach out to him directly, and that's EthanRusso at Comcast.net. And if you do email Ethan, you know, give him uh, some time to get back with you because he, he does try to get back with everybody, but you know he's a, a busy person doing a lot of traveling for research. So you know, be kind and be patient. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.